Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral's Light Show 161. Now, you've just listened to this show, but due to copyright reasons, which I've missed completely, not allowed to play Slice of Life by Lucius Shepard just yet. So there's been there's so much good stuff in this show that I didn't want to just kind of delete it anyways. So what I've done is I've edited out the Slice of Life story. So this is that show. if you've listened to this show, there's nothing new in it. It's just a slightly different version without that story in. You know, there's still there's Fred's bit in there and there's David's bit in there as well. So and every everything else apart from Slice of Life. So apologies for that, but I shouldn't have played it just yet. <laughs> everyone hope everyone is fine and dandy give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show we've got the announcement of the winners from last month's then and now let tell you who that is then we have the first of the new music sci-fi related fact articles by david bradshaw david's called it tau city radio after named it after that fantastic song of his then we have a bit of main fiction it is walter m miller's death of a spaceman Next up is our good friend Fred Heimbaugh with his graphical fan for November. Then we have, which I haven't actually got yet, what I'm recording is, I've got a fact article by Larry Santuro. Larry took himself off to FantasyCon, World FantasyCon is it? And he's going to give a little kind of grounding and like what happened, his kind of bird's eye view of that FantasyCon. And like I say, at this moment I haven't got it, so Larry, get it sent over. <laughs> God's sake. Then we've got a little promo by Janie Godley's podcast, so do look out for that. Before I go any further, though, I just want to say a big, big thank you to everyone, honestly, everyone who's bought, downloaded, or got themselves a big copy of Starship Sova's Volume 2. You know what I mean? You've just been an amazing bunch of people. Thank you so much. Do you know what I mean? This has just kind of lifted the show up and just made our like secure for, for ages. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we are spend money, mind you. I'll have one of them and one of them. But honestly, it's just been fantastic. Thank you so much. Here's a couple of little bits of news to make your buying powers that much easier. Well, one one certainly is. The other one is, you know, you still got to pay a full whack. Full whack thing I am on about is the the book with the signatures in the very special, special edition. There is two copies left. That's it. That's all we've got. I haven't got one. You know what I mean? I'm not getting one. But there's two copies left. So, if you honestly, you've got to be in there or you'll miss it. If you've been hanging on and hanging on, we've only got two. Then that's it. The finish, the gone, the kaput. 
We had a rash of sales last week just came in out of nowhere, you know what I mean? So thank you everyone that bought that copy of that book. Thank you so much. Next up is, I was emailing, you know, apologies if you got that many emails off us, you know, like reminding about book, the, the kind of the Starship Sofa's, Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2 there in your email. But I had this code for October, I think it was October book, and it gave you 20% off at Lulu. And it was a great, you know what I mean? And again, loads of people, you know, came in and, and did that. And again, thank you so much for buying that book. You know, you're just amazing people. I hope, please, you know, send in some audio if you get, get a copy and you like it. And it was Gonzalo on the forums that actually mentioned this October book code. You know, you get this code and you type it in and bang, 20% off everything. You know what I mean? In Lulu. Obviously, 20% off my stuff, but other stuff as well. Now, Gonzalo has went and dug up another code. Now, I don't know where he's getting these codes from. Is he making them himself? <laughs> but if you type in Novembook, N-O-V-E-M-B-O-O-K, again, 20% off. So I didn't know this when, you know, I mean, this is great for, like, Starship Sofas because I get the full amount. It's Lulu that's kind of taking the 20% hit, do you know? So please go over there with your code, and that's off all, you know, the different ranges, right from the very first one, which I think is a three ninety nine one, right up to, like, the hardback special. So fantastic. Not the £89 one, mind you, no, no. But again, there's only two copies left, so if you want one of them, please... So that's me two bits of news about Volume 2. I'm actually excited about Volume 3, but that's for another few months away. Now, another bit of news is good news, more good news. The Enhanced Podcast, or the Enhanced Feed. If a lot of, a lot of you now have kind of come through and said, Tony, you shouldn't really, you know, you shouldn't really kill that off, you know, I'm quite, I like it. You didn't say this before, and no one's kind of, you know, 150, 200 people downloading it so i was already kill it off out of the depths of the murk of the kind of space warp whatever universe steps shig the unmentionable yes that's his name shig crazy man shig stepped up and has offered to kind of do the enhanced feed he loves it so much it's so easy for him and like yes it is you know but it was just, there wasn't many taken up on the, the offer for me, so that's why I was kind of going to put it to bed. But Shig has said, he stepped up, and he's going to now do the enhanced feed and put it, send it back to me, and then that's it. It's just uploaded, and away we go. So, good news for that enhanced feed. It has a second life. Thank you to Shig the Unmentionable. <laughs> I'll put links and codes and everything like that on the front of the website if you want to come over and check out that book, you know, and go over there and get your 20% off. And like I said before, if you've got the book and you want to put an audio together for us, I would love that, you know what I mean? That's fantastic. So last month's Then and Now was August Ehrlich against Peter Higgins. And those two, those two kind of went up head-to-head, a young Peter Higgins against the kind of master August Ehrlich. And the winner was the old grandmaster himself, August Derleth, with 66% against Peter Higgins is 33%. There you go. So this week, I've done, just for two reasons, really, I've kind of picked Lucia Shepard, who's, you know, she's not like a young, sprightly Peter Higgins kind of age, but he's certainly, you know, of the time. But it was more to do with... 
it was, you know, it's the kind of the tail end of Halloween and everything like that. And this is the vampire story. And I just wanted to kind of play that vampire story. And because the narrator is Ashley's story, who you'll listen to on the promo a little bit later on as well. And I just want you to kind of listen to the story first and then listen to the promo and tell us what you think. So just to recap, the August Durliff was the winner of last month's Then and Now. 66% up against 33 for Peter Higgins. So now we come to the first fact article of the day and to brand new one by David Bradshaw. If everyone, anyone's new to the show, a couple of weeks ago to, to promote Starship Sova's Stories Volume 2, David and Dee, or it was David that kind of produced the music for the, the video that accompanied that book. David just sent this file over to me, you know, it was the first time I heard Tau City Radio, and it was fantastic. After that, actually playing that song, I got lots of emails saying, you know, you want music, Tony, sci-fi music on the, the show? Well, it's something that I know bugger all about, you know what I mean? I haven't got a clue. I just knew David would be the man for it, do you know what I mean? He's kind of so clued up in that kind of area anyway. So this is the first fact article by David Bradshaw for his Tau City Radio. And again, if you want any info, if you've got any info, send it over to David. I'll put a link on David's website and email and, you know, drop him some ideas for next month's show. Have you ever thought that perhaps somehow... The craft of violin making in the 18th century would lead to the eventual overthrow of humanity by robots? Well, if you haven't, you're probably not alone. But if you have, you've tuned into the right show. Welcome to the first official episode of Tau Seti Radio. My name's David Bradshaw. You may recall just a couple of weeks ago, my song Tau Seti Radio was featured on the promotional video for Starship Sofa Stories Volume 2. And uh, I'm happy to say the response to that song was rather positive overall. More importantly, a lot of folks expressed interest in having music as a regular feature on Starship Sofa. Science fiction music, that is. So to that end, we're going to do this, hopefully once a month, and feature music from you folks, uh, from the listeners, and anybody else we can find who's interested in contributing science fiction-related music to the program to play. Uh, as well, probably do a little little talking about science fiction and music-related ideas and thoughts and uh, explore the idea. Uh, to be honest, when uh, first put to the task, it occurred to me that I wasn't entirely sure what science fiction music was, like what qualifies something to be science fiction music. I like to think of it as a fairly open-ended idea, really. Science fiction as storytelling, perhaps, and to that end, maybe we've got songs that tell the tales of science fiction futures. 
the the musical versions of the of the print or audio stories that we so enjoy around here, um, but also uh, the making of music or the science or technology of music, perhaps, and see if we can find some science fiction inspired or inspiring ideas in there. Now, I have to confess, I'm I'm rather a luddite when it comes to most of this sort of stuff. Uh, my preferences usually lie in the realm of creaky antique wooden string instruments usually played uh, in in a folk music sort of fashion uh, usually where progress and uh, technique and technology are thought of as uh, something to be uh, mistrusted shall we say but damn the torpedoes we're going to move on and by moving on we're going to start by moving back Back we go to 16th century Italy, uh, specifically in the area of Cremona, uh, a little bit of the history of violin making. A gentleman by the name of Andrea Amati, who lived from 1511 to 1579, established a, a family tradition that would last for generations of violin making. Uh, the most famous member of his family would be Niccolo Amati, uh, who lived from 1596 to 1684. Uh, famous for two reasons, because First of all, his violins were considered to be the best of their kind at the time, uh, the height of development of the tradition of violin building that uh, had been established in the Amati family. Secondly, and, and possibly more so, uh, Amati was famous as the teacher of Antonio Stradivari, who lived from 1648 to 1737 and enjoyed not only an incredibly long and productive career as a violin maker, but the reputation of being the finest craftsman ever to make violins. Now, why all this violin-making business back in the uh, late 16th and early 17th century is interesting uh, is that it it represents a, a, a push of technology. And... Uh, not only in in terms of the building of the instruments themselves, but the results that that had. Uh, the Amati family, uh, through several generations, uh, developed and improved violins and resulted with the instruments that had the reputation for the, the, the best, sweetest, most lovely and delicate, soft and clear tone. Stradivari, using some original ideas of his own, while building on the tradition of his teacher, took that a bit further, was producing instruments that were uh, still wonderfully clear and sweet and beautiful and pure of tone, but were capable of much greater projection, uh, of, of playing more evenly over over more tremendous range of notes. And at about the same time, the musicians that were playing these instruments were developing new techniques. Now, this is a bit of a chicken and an egg situation. It's hard to say who started it. Did the builders make better instruments because the players were asking for them, or did the players get better because the instruments were getting better? Hard to say for sure, probably a little of each. The important thing is that not only did the conventional playing get better, but it changed. New techniques were being developed. Musicians were playing from much larger ranges than they would typically have before, simply because the instruments were facilitating it. They could explore new ideas in ways that the old instruments would have simply been too limited to do. 
As a result, the players not only are improving their technical abilities, but the folks who are writing the music are actually coming up with new ideas to exploit these techniques. Another example would be uh, come forward to the uh, by the end of the 18th century. We see a couple of gentlemen, uh, one in France and one in England, uh, a gentleman by the name of Francois Tort, primarily, uh, as well as uh, John Dodd in England, uh, were developing new styles of violin bows. You must understand that a bow and a violin originally was just that. It resembled the sort of thing you would fling an arrow with. Uh, these two folks, at about the same time, redesigned the bow curved inward towards the hair, and the discovery was that a well-balanced, well-carved bow of this variety was considerably better to control and gave the player considerably more precise control. Not only that, developed new ways of playing, of, of skipping and bouncing the bow in incredibly controlled ways. Literally, again, coming up with techniques that would have been impossible on the older instruments. So why, you might ask, am I spending so much time talking about such an historic, uh, classical, austere, or you know, perhaps even quaint subject as violin making in Italy in the 16th century and onward? Well, let's come forward to the 21st century and consider where we are with all of this wonderful digital technology. The, uh, the the toys that we enjoy now that were mere fantasy, uh, you know, really only a few decades ago. The capability of this wonderful digital hardware that uh, I'm sitting in front of right now, uh, for instance, and we're surrounded by and, and accept as an absolutely routine part of our lives day to day. Regardless of what serious purpose the inventors of computers might have had in mind, Back in the day, uh, you know, military or scientific or what have you, uh, the simple fact is that an awful lot of people spend an awful lot of time with this technology these days, recreating, uh, playing games, in enjoying music or media or what have you, uh, or, or or better still, creating it. We have, because of this computer technology, we have the facility to make music uh, more easily and of better quality. I, I, not that many years ago, the fantasy of an aspiring songwriter was to be able to afford a cassette deck that could record on multiple tracks and that you could actually create rough ideas of what a recorded song might sound like. That, that's preposterously low-tech by current standards. Uh, anybody with a good quality computer and a couple of microphones can record a professional quality music product uh, for CD or for internet use or what have you. But the, the record album that required a room full of studio equipment and tens of thousands of dollars to produce, if not more, can easily be done by somebody at home on their own computer with, with a fraction, if that, of the expense involved. And of course, this doesn't just mean that we can make music the same way uh, and, and just do a better job of it, just get a better sounding recording at home. It's completely blown the doors open in how we make music. Uh, the, the, the music that I've recorded, for instance, on this show, uh, the Tau Ceti Radio song itself, I did everything by myself with computer equipment. All of the instruments I played, one at a time, laid them over, digitally edited them to make it sound like the performance of an ensemble of musicians. 
This technique is is not new by any means. I mean, Les Paul, uh, famous jazz guitarist, uh, was was doing something very similar with with considerably more crude technology. I mean, old record player, turntable, platter, you know, cutting cutting wax records in that fashion, uh, and and uh, recording them back over top of one another and adding parts as he went. Uh, you know, so I mean, certainly the, the the whole process of multi-tracking, as we call it, is not new, uh, but it it opens up other possibilities. Suddenly, you're not worried about simply capturing a performance of music on uh, on a recording. You can you can literally build it, and you can do different things uh, that wouldn't be possible at all in terms of real instruments. Les Paul, again, a terrific example. When he was recording uh, the music, he would use the guitar an electric guitar, and would change the sound of the thing. So instead of simply performing uh, parts on the guitar in a conventional sense, he would sometimes record them uh, and then speed the tape up to give the impression of it being a much, much, much higher-pitched instrument or slow the tape down to give it a very, very slow, bassy sound. And all of a sudden, because of this electronic manipulation of the sounds a single instrument in the hands of a single player becomes an absolute orchestra of different sounds. But folks, it even gets better than that, because we don't even have to do things in a conventional sense anymore. Uh, music is no longer limited to just being uh, the conventional, as we understand, a conventional performance of, of instruments, uh, you know, of, an, of a musician picking up an instrument and playing it. Even if, after the fact, we're talking about such wonderful concepts as uh, <clears throat> as digital editing or, or processing to, to manipulate that sound. I mean, we can, we can dispense with the instruments altogether. We've got uh, the capability of, of generating simulated instruments on the computers. Uh, for that matter, I mean, again, this is not a new thing. We can go back to the 1950s. Uh, take, for example, the, the soundtrack of uh, the famous film Forbidden Planet. Uh, music for that film was done by uh, a couple of folks, Louis and Baby uh, Baron. And music, in a very unusual sense, they used no musical instruments whatsoever to generate the entire soundtrack for that film. They used an electronic device called a ring modulator, recording sounds, manipulating the tape either by speeding the tape up or slowing it down, or sometimes even reversing it, adding various electronic reverbs and echo effects to give it some you know, unusual spacey sorts of qualities and all of a sudden you've got an entirely new concept in how to compose music and something so fitting has to be a soundtrack for a science fiction film in the same way that the italian violin making masters stradivarian and his contemporaries and, and folks that followed after him of course uh rewrote the rule book for not only the makers of the instruments but the composers of music and the performers of music of basically changing what was done because now you could do things that weren't possible before that the technology of the instruments allowed things to be done new ways of making music new playing techniques 
we're now in a very similar way observing uh, the the entire concept of music being completely overturned and changed. What we can think of now as how to make music, as what qualifies as as a musical instrument, even or or for that matter, what qualifies as music, is now changing, and very directly because of the changes in the technology, of the development of of digital technology, and and it's continuing to press forward with that. And, uh, you know, that's uh, science fiction is now fact. You know, the future is today. We are watching a wonderful transition into completely undiscovered territory. Which all, of course, brings us back to the beginning. In this case, to robots. Robots taking over the world, overthrowing humanity. What does this have to do with anything I've been talking about here on this show? Well, plenty, if you consider the beautifully charming and slightly bizarre work of one Jacob Haler. A resident of Providence, Rhode Island, and a writer of some incredibly quirky stuff, uh, sometimes on a science fiction theme. Not always, but he does have a few science fiction-themed songs, and a common theme, at least in a couple of his tunes, is what appears to be a deep-seated concern that uh, eventually robots will take things over, and uh, perhaps that might even be better. Uh, further to this uh, advancement of technology in a horrifying sort of way, we must consider the fact that uh, uh, Jacob is involved with uh, an online project called the Interrobang Cartel. And uh, you should absolutely look them up. Uh, the link will be on the blog with uh, Tony's assistance, I trust. Uh, as I said earlier, I'm a Luddite. I'm not so good with uh, with links and things like that, but we'll get them set up for you. And you really, really must check out the Interrobang Cartel and all of their wonderful, quirky products, as well as Jacob Heller and all of his work. Uh, another gentleman involved with this project is uh, Casey Benetto, who lives on the other side of the world in Australia. And these two gentlemen collaborated on a song. Now, bear in mind, they have never, ever met or even been in a, a room together in person. I don't know if they've even spoken on the phone, to be honest. But they have worked over the internet together and put together a piece of music. And if that isn't the darndest thing. Jacob wrote the lyrics. Casey set them to music. Appropriately enough, the music that he set them to is also entirely electronic. Even the voice on it has been altered and modified uh, in, in an electronic fashion. Uh, so this is a, a beautiful expression of exactly the sort of, of changes that I'm talking about here, that the, uh, because of the internet, because of digital uh, electronic music-making technology, we've got an entirely new way to compose music. People who have never met in person on opposite sides of the world can collaborate effortlessly and come up with wonderful, wonderful music. So to that end, I give you the robot song. I used to work at the mall Telling robots 
the robot song by the interrobang cartel jacob howler casey benetto and uh once again we will put the links up on the uh, blog for you to make sure that you can go check out uh, those gentlemen and all of the other musical projects that they do and believe me they will make you happier than you've ever been at least until the robots take over well that's just about the end of the transmission from tau seti this month Tune in next time. We're going to look at some classic science fiction television series and uh, check out their vision of music in the 25th century. For Starship Sofa, I'm David Bradshaw. Turn on your radios, folks. David, thank you so much. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that. Look out for next month's Tau City Radio. So next up is main fiction, Death of a Spaceman by Walter M. Miller. And, you know, it's Walter M. Miller's, funny enough, canticle for Leibowitz, which it's always there in my, you know, you have these kind of top five books of your kind of science fiction, your little lists. Well, canticle for Leibowitz is always... Just under, I've always got two, like, uh, kind of coming joint first place. Flowers for Algernon and Joe Haldeman's Forever War. But there's always just under there, you know, just, just underneath is Walter M. Miller's Canticle for Leibowitz. And if you haven't read that book, please go out and get that. Wow, what a great book that is. This narration is by...
Simon Hildebrand. Now, Simon actually did a... Well, it's, a it's a family. It's a family here. Simon did the... If, you, if you've got one of the Android systems, phone systems, he did the, the application so you can go down and download Starship Sofa from the Android system as well. I think it's called Sofa Stream. So not only is Simon kind of fluent in all kind of geeky stuff and code writing and everything like that, he's a fantastic narrator as well. I'll certainly get some more work off Simon. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Death of a Spaceman by Walter M. Miller Jr. The manner in which a man has lived is often the key to the way he will die. Take old man Donegal, for example. Most of his adult life was spent in digging a hole through space to learn what was on the other side. Would he go out the same way? Old Donegal was dying. They had all known it was coming, and they watched it come. His haggard wife, his daughter, and now his grandson home on emergency leave from the Pre-Astronautics Academy. Old Donegal knew it too, and had known it from the beginning, when he had begun to lose control of his legs and was forced to walk with a cane. But most of the time, he pretended to let them keep the secret they shared with the doctors, that the operations had all been failures, and that the cancer that fed at his spine would gnaw its way brainward until the paralysis engulfed vital organs, and then old Donegal would cease to be. It would be cruel to let them know that he knew. Once, weeks ago, he had joked about the approaching shadows. Buy the plot back where people won't walk over it, Martha, he said. Get away back under the cedars, next to the fence. There aren't many graves back there yet. I want to be alone. Don't talk that way, Donny, his wife had choked. You're not dying. His eyes twinkled maliciously. Listen, Martha, I want to be buried face down. I want to be buried with my back to space, understand? Don't let them lay me out like a lily. Donny, please. They ought to face a man the way he's headed, Donegal grunted. I've been up, way up. Now I'm going straight down. Martha had fled the room in tears. He'd never done it again, except to the interns and nurses who, while they insisted that he was going to get well, didn't mind joking with him about it. Martha can bear my death, he thought, can bear pre-knowledge of it, but she couldn't bear thinking he might take it calmly. If he accepted death gracefully, it would be like deliberately leaving her, and old Donegal had decided to help her believe whatever would be comforting to her in such a troublesome moment. When'll they let me out of this bed again, he complained. Be patient, Donny, she sighed. It won't be long. You'll be up and around before you know it. Back on the moon run, maybe, he offered. Listen, Martha, I've been planet-bound too long. I'm not too old for the moon run, am I? Sixty-three's not so old. That had been carrying things too far. She knew he was hoaxing, and dabbed at her eyes again. The dead must humour the mourners, he thought, and the sick must comfort the visitors. It was always so. But it was harder now that the end was near. His eyes were hazy and his thoughts unclear. He could move his arms a little, clumsily, but feeling was gone from them. The rest of his body was lost to him. Sometimes he seemed to feel his stomach and his hips, but the sensation was mostly an illusion offered by higher nervous centres, like the ghost arm that an amputee continues to feel. The wires were down and he was cut off from himself. He lay wheezing on the hospital bed, in his own room, in his own rented flat. Gaunt and unshaven, grey as winter twilight, he lay staring at the white net curtains that billowed gently in the breeze from the open window. There was no sound in the room but the sound of breathing and the loud ticking of an alarm clock. 
Occasionally he heard a chair scraping on the stone terrace next door, and a low mutter of voices, sometimes laughter, as the servants of the Keith Mansion arranged the terrace for late afternoon guests. With considerable effort he rolled his head towards Martha, who sat beside the bed, pinch-faced and weary. "'You ought to get some sleep,' he said. "'I slept yesterday. Don't talk, Donny. It tires you.' "'You ought to get more sleep. You never sleep enough. Are you afraid I'll get up and run away if you go to sleep for a while?' She managed a brittle smile. "'There'll be plenty of time for sleep when... when you're well again.' The brittle smile fled and she swallowed hard like swallowing a fishbone. He glanced down and noticed that she was squeezing his hand spasmodically. There wasn't much left of the hand, he thought. Bones and ugly, tight-stretched hide spotted with brown. Bulging knuckles with yellow cigarette stains. My hand. He tried to tighten it, tried to squeeze Martha's thin one in return. He watched it open and contract a little, but it was like operating a remote control mechanism. Goodbye, hand. You'll leave me the way my legs did, he told it. I'll see you again in hell. How hammy can you get, old Donegal? You mortal and ass. Rikoskut. He muttered over the hand and let it lie in peace. Perhaps she heard him. Donny? She whispered, leaning closer. Wouldn't you let me call the priest now? Please. He rattled a sigh and rolled his head towards the window again. Are the Keiths having a party today? he asked. Sounds like they're moving chairs out on the terrace. Please, Donny, the priest? He let his head roll aside and closed his eyes as if asleep. The bed shook slightly as she quickly caught at his wrist to feel for a pulse. If I'm not dying, I don't need a priest, he said sleepily. That's not right, she scolded softly. You know that's not right, Donny. You know better. Maybe I'm being too rough on her, he wondered. He hadn't minded getting baptised her way, and married her way, and occasionally priest-handled the way she wanted him to when he was home from a space run. But when it came to dying, old Donegal wanted to do it his own way. He opened his eyes at the sound of a bench being dragged across the stone terrace. Martha, what kind of party are the Keiths having today? I wouldn't know, she said stiffly. You'd think they'd have a little more respect. You'd think they put it off a few days. Until? Until you feel better. I feel fine, Martha. I like parties. I'm glad they're having one. Pour me a drink, will you? I can't reach the bottle anymore. It's empty. No, it isn't, Martha. It's still a quarter full. I know. I've been watching it. You shouldn't have it, Donny. Please don't. But this is a party, Martha. Besides, the doctor says I can have whatever I want. Whatever I want, you hear? That means I'm getting well, doesn't it? Sure, Donny. Sure. Getting well. The whiskey, Martha. Just a finger and a tumbler, no more. I want to feel like it's a party. Her throat was rigid as she poured it. She helped him get the tumbler to his mouth. The liquor seared his throat, and he gagged a little as the fumes clogged his nose. Good whiskey. The best. But he couldn't take it anymore. He eyed the green stamp on the neck of the bottle on the bed table and grinned. He hadn't had whiskey like that since his space days. Couldn't afford it now. Not on a blastman's pension. He remembered how he and Cade used to smuggle a couple of fifths aboard for the moon run. If they caught you, it meant suspension, but there was no harm in it. Not for the blast room men, 
who had nothing much to do from the time the ship acquired enough velocity for the long, long coaster ride until they started the rockets again for lunar landing. You could drink a fifth, jettison the bottle through the trash lock, and sober up before you were needed again. It was the only way to pass the time in the cramped cubicle, unless you ruined your eyes trying to read by the glow lamps. Old Donegal chuckled. If he and Cade had stayed on the run, Earth would have a ring by now like satin, a ring of old granddad bottles. You said it, Donny boy, said the misty man by the billowing curtains. Who else knows the Gegenschein is broken glass? Donegal laughed. Then he wondered what the man was doing there. The man was lounging against the window, and his unzipped space rig draped about him in an old familiar way. Loose plug-in connections and hose ends dangled about his lean body. He was freckled and grinning. Cade, old Donegan breathed softly. What did you say, Donny? Martha answered. Old Donegal blinked hard and shook his head. Something let go with a soggy snap, and the misty man was gone. I better take it easy on the whiskey, he thought. You got to wait, Donegal, old lush, until Nora and Ken get here. You can't get drunk until they're gone, or you might get them mixed up with memories like Cade's. Car doors slammed in the street below. Martha glanced towards the window. Think it's them? I wish they'd get here. I wish they'd hurry. Martha rose and tiptoed to the window. She peered down towards the sidewalk, put on a sharp frown. He heard a distant mutter of voices and occasional laughter, with group footsteps milling about on the sidewalk. Martha murmured her disapproval and closed the window. Leave it open, he said. But the Keith's guests are starting to come. There'll be such a racket. She looked at him hopefully, the way she did when she prompted his manners before company came. Maybe it wasn't decent to listen in on a party when you were dying, he thought. But that wasn't the reason. Donegal, your chamber pressure's dropping off. Your brains are in your butt end, where a space's brains belong. But your butt end died last month. She wants the window closed for her own sake, not yours. Leave it closed, he grunted. But open it again when the moon run blasts off. I want to listen. She smiled and nodded, glancing at the clock. It'll be an hour and a half yet. I'll watch the time. I hate that clock. I wish you'd throw it out. It's loud. It's your medicine clock, Donny. She came back to sit down at his bedside again. She sat in silence. The clock filled the room with its clicking pulse. What time are they coming? he asked. Nora and Jen? They'll be here soon. Don't fret. Why should I fret? he chuckled. That boy, he'll be a good spacer, won't he, Martha? Martha said nothing, fanning at a fly that crawled across his pillow. The fly buzzed up in an angry spiral and alighted on the ceiling. Donegal watched it for a time. The fly had natural-born space legs. I know your tricks, he told it, with a smile, and I learned to walk on the bottom side of things before you were a maggot. You stand there with your magnasoles hanging to the hull, and the rest of you's in freefall. You jerk a sole loose, and your knee flies up to your belly, and reaction spins you half around, and it throws your other hip out of joint if you don't jam the foot down fast and jerk up the other. It's worse than trying to run through knee-deep mud with snowshoes, and a man will go nuts trying to keep his arms and legs from taking off in odd directions. I know your tricks, Fly. But the fly was born with his magnasoles, and he trotted across the ceiling like Donegal never could. That boy can. He ought to make a damn good space engineer, wheezed the old man. Her silence was long, and he rolled his head towards her again. Her lips tight, she stared down at the palm of his hand, unfolded his bony fingers, felt the cracked calluses that still welted the shrunken skin, 
calluses worn there by the linings of space gauntlets and the handles of fuel valves and the rungs of get-about ladders during freefall. I don't know if I should tell you. Tell me what, Martha? She looked up slowly, scrutinising his face. Ken's changed his mind, Nora says. Ken doesn't like the academy. She says he wants to go to medical school. Old Donegal thought it over, nodded absently. That's fine. Space medics get good pay. He watched her carefully. She lowered her eyes, rubbed at his calluses again. She shook her head slowly. He doesn't want to go to space. The clock clicked loudly in the closed room. I thought I ought to tell you, so you won't say anything to him about it, she added. Old Donegal looked greyer than before. After a long silence, he rolled his head away and looked towards the limp curtains. Open the window, Martha, he said. Her tongue clucked faintly as she started to protest, but she said nothing. After frozen seconds, she sighed and went to open it. The curtains billowed and a babble of conversation blew in from the terrace of the Keith mansion. With the sound came the occasional brassy discord of a musician tuning his instrument. She clutched the window sash as if she wished to slam it closed again. Well, music, grunted old Donegal. That's good. This is some shebang. Good whiskey and good music and you? He chuckled, but it choked off into a fit of coughing. Donny, about Ken. No matter, Martha, he said hastily. Space medic's pay is good. But Donny... She turned from the window, stared at him briefly, then said, Sure, Donny, sure. And came back to sit down by his bed. He smiled at her affectionately. She was a man's woman, was Martha. Always had been, still was. He had married her the year he had gone to space. A lissom, wistful, old-fashioned lass, with big violet eyes and gentle hands and gentle thoughts. And she had never complained about the long and lonely weeks between blast-off and glide-down, when most spaces' wives listened to the psychiatrists and soap operas and soon developed the symptoms that were expected of them either because the symptoms were chic, or because they felt they should do something to earn the pity that was extended to them. It's not so bad, Martha had assured him. The house keeps me busy till Nora's home from school, and then there's a flock of kids around till dinner. Nights are a little empty, but there's a moon. I can always go out on the porch and look at it, and know where you are. And Nora gets out the telescope you built her, and we make a game of it. Seeing if Daddy's still at the office, she calls it. Those are the days, he muttered. What, Donny? Do you remember that Steve Farron song? She pauses, frowning thoughtfully. There were a lot of Steve Farron songs, but after a moment she picked the right one and sang it softly. O moon, where o'er the clouds fly, beyond the willow tree, there is a rambling space sky I wish you'd save for me. Mare tranquillitatis, o dark and tranquil sea, until he drops from heaven. Rest him there with thee. Her voice cracked, and she laughed. Old Donegal chuckled weakly. Fried mush, he said. That one made the cats wilt their ears and wail at the moon. I feel real crazy, he added. Hand me the King Kong, Fluff Muff. Keep cool, Daddy-o. You've had enough. Martha reddened and patted his arm, looking pleased. Neither of them had talked that way even in the old days, but the outdated slang brought back memories. School parties, dances at the Rocketport Club, the early years of the war, when Donegal had jockeyed an R-43 fighter in the close space assaults against the Soviet satellite project. The memories were good. 
A brassy blare of modern slide arose suddenly from the Keith Terrace as the small orchestra launched into its first number. Martha caught an angry breath and started towards the window. Leave it, he said. It's a party. Whiskey, Martha, please. Just a small one. She gave him a hurtful glance. Whiskey, then call the priest. Donny, it's not right. You know it's not right. To bargain for such as that? All right. Whiskey, forget the priest. She poured it for him and helped him get it down and then went out to make the phone call. Old Donegal lay shuddering over the whiskey taste and savouring the burn in his throat. Jesus, but it was good. You old bastard, he thought. You got no right to enjoy life when nine-tenths of you is dead already and the rest is foggy as a thermal dust rise on the lunar maria at hell dawn. But it wasn't a bad way to die. It ate your consciousness away from the feet up it gnawed away the present, but it let you keep the past until everything faded and blended. Maybe that's what eternity was, he thought. One man's subjective past, all wrapped up and packaged for shipment. A single space-time entity, a one-man microcosm of memories, when nothing else remained. If I've got a soul, I made it myself, he told the grey nun at the foot of the bed. The nun held out a pie pan, rattled a few coins in it. Contribute to the radiation victim's relief? The nun purred softly. I know you, he said. You're my conscience. You hung around the officer's mess, and when we got back from a sortie, you made us pay for the damage we did. But that was forty years ago. The nun smiled, and her luminous eyes were on him softly. Mother of God, he breathed, and reached for the whiskey. His arm obeyed. The last drink had done him good. He had to watch his hand to see where it was going and squeezed the neck until his fingers whitened so that he knew that he had it. But he got it off the table and onto his chest, and he got the cork out with his teeth. He had a long pull at the bottle, and it made his eyes water and his hands grow weak. But he got it back to the table without spilling a bit, and he was proud of himself. The room was spinning like the cabin of a gyro-graved ship. By the time he wrestled it to a standstill, the nun was gone. The blare of the music from the Keith Terrace was louder, and laughing voices blended with it. Chairs scraping and glasses rattling. A fine party, Keith. I'm glad you picked today. This shebang will be the youngest Keith's affair. Ronald Tonwiller Keith III, scion of Orbital Engineering and Construction Company, builders of the moon shuttle ships that made the run from the satellite station to Lunar and back. It was good to have such important neighbours, he thought. He wished he had been able to meet them while he was still up and about. But the Keith's place was walled in, and when a Keith came out, He charged out in a limousine with a chauffeur at the wheel, and the iron gate closed again. The Keiths built the wall when the surrounding neighbourhood began to grow shabby with age. It had once been the best of neighbourhoods, but that was before old Donegal lived in it. Now it consisted of sooty old houses and rented flats, and the Keith place was really not a part of it anymore. Nevertheless, it was really something when a pensioned blastman could say, I live out close to the Keiths, you know, the Ronald Keiths. At least that's what Martha always told him. The music was so loud that he never heard the doorbell ring, but when a lull came he heard Nora's voice downstairs, and listened hopefully for Ken's. But when they came up, the boy was not with them. Hello, skinny britches, he greeted his daughter. Nora grinned and came over to kiss him. Her hair dangled about his face, and he noticed that it was blacker than usual, with the grey streaks gone from it again. You smell good, he said. You don't, Pops. You smell like a sot. Naughty. Where's Ken? She moistened her lips nervously and looked away. He couldn't come. He had to take a driver's lesson. 
He really couldn't help it. If he didn't go, he'd lose his turn, and then he wouldn't finish before he goes back to the academy. She looked at him apologetically. It's all right, Nora. If he missed it, he wouldn't get his copter license until summer. It's okay. Copters. Hell, the boy should be in jets by now. Several breaths passed in silence. She gazed absently towards the window and shook her head. No jets, Pop. Not for Ken. He glowered at her. Listen, how'll he get into space? He's got to get his jet licenses first. Can't get into rockets without him. Nora shot a quick glance at her mother. Martha rolled her eyes as if sighing patiently. Nora went to the window to stare down towards the Keith Terrace. She tucked a cigarette between scarlet lips, lit it, blew nervous smoke against the pane. Mum, can't you call them and have that racket stopped? Donnie says he likes it. Nora's eyes flitted over the scene below. Female butterflies had puppy dogs in sport jackets. And the cadets. She snorted. Cadets? Imagine Ron Keith III ever going to space. The old man buys his way into the academy, and they throw a brawl as if Ronnie passed the competes. Maybe he did, growled old Donegal. Ha! They live in a different world, I guess, Martha sighed. If it weren't for men like Pops, they'd never made their fortune. I like the music, I tell you, grumbled the old man. I'm half a mind to go over there and tell them off, Nora murmured. Let them alone, just so they'll stop the racket for Blastaway. Look at them, polite little pattern cuts all alike. They take pre-space because it's the thing to do. Then they quit before the payoff comes. How do you know they'll quit? That party, I bet it costs six months' pay, spacers pay, she went on, ignoring him. And what do real spacers get? Ollie gets killed, and Pop's pension wouldn't feed the Keith's cat. You don't understand, girl. I lost Ollie. I understand enough. He watched her silently for a moment, then closed his eyes. It was no good trying to explain, no good trying to tell her the dough didn't mean a damn thing. She'd been a spacer's wife, and that was bad enough, but now she was a spacer's widow. And Ollie? Ollie's tomb revolved around the sun in an eccentric orbit that spun in close to Mercury, then reached out into the asteroid belt once every 725 days. When it comes within rocket radius of Earth, it whizzes past at close to 15 miles a second. You don't rescue a ship like that, skinny britches, my darling daughter. Nor do you salvage it after the crew stops screaming for help. If you use enough fuel to catch it, you won't get back. You just leave such a ship there forever, like an asteroid, and it's a damn shame about the men trapped aboard. Heroes all, no doubt. But the smallness of the widow's monthly check failed to confirm the heroism, and Nora was bitter about the price of Ollie's memory, perhaps. Ouch. Old Donegal, you know she's not like that. It's just that she can't understand about space. You ought to make her understand. But did he really understand himself? You ride hot in a roaring blast room, hands tensed on the mixer controls and the pumps, eyes glued to the instruments, body sucked down in a four-gravity thrust, and wait for the command to choke it off. Then you float free and weightless in a long nightmare as the beast coasts moonward, a flung javelin. The romance of space, drivel written in the old days. When you're not blasting, you float in a cramped hotbox, crawl through dirty mazes of greasy pipe and cable to tighten a lug, Scratch your arms and bark your shins, get sick and choked up because no gravity helps your gullet get the food down. Liquid is worse, but you gag your whiskey down because you have to. Stars? You see stars by squinting through a viewing lens, and it's like a phototransparency, and if you aren't careful, you'll get an eyeful of old blinder and back off with a punch-trunk retina. Adventure? Unless the skipper calls for course correction, you float around in the blast cubicle with damn little to do between blastaway and moondown, except sweat out the omniscient accident statistics. 
If the beast blows up or gets gutted in space, a statistic had your name on it, that's all, and there's no fighting back. You stay outwardly sane because you're a hog for punishment. If you weren't, you never get past the psychologists. Did you like horror movies when you were a kid? Asked the psych. And you damn well better answer yes, if you want to go to space. Tell her, old man, you're her pop. Tell her why it's worth it, if you know. You jail yourself in a coffin-sized cubicle, and a crazy beast thunders berserk for uncontrollable seconds, and then you soar in ominous silence for the long, long hours. Grow sweaty, filthy, sick, miserable, idle, somewhere out in big empty, where man's got no business except the trouble he always makes for himself wherever he goes. Tell her why it's worth it, for pay less than a good bricklayer's. Tell her why Ollie would do it again. It's a sucker's run, Nora, he says. You go looking for kicks, but the only kicks you get to keep is what Ollie got. God knows why, but it's worth it. Nora said nothing. He opened his eyes slowly. Nora was gone. Had she been there at all? He blinked around at the fuzzy room and dissolved the shifting shadows that sometimes emerged as old friendly faces, grinning at him. He found Martha. You went to sleep, said Martha. She had to go. Kenny called. He'll be over later if you're not too tired. I'm not tired. I'm all head. There's nothing much to get tired. I love you, old Donegal. Hold my hand again. I'm holding it, old man. Then hold me where I can feel it. She slid a thin arm around his neck and bent over his face to kiss him. She was crying a little, and he was glad she could do it now without fleeing the room. Can I talk about dying now? He wondered aloud. She pinched her lips together and shook her head. I lie to myself, Martha. You know how much I lie to myself? She nodded slowly and stroked his grey temples. I lie to myself about Ken and about dying. If Ken turns space or I wouldn't die, that's what I told myself, you know? She shook her head. Don't talk, Donnie, please. A man makes his own soul, Martha. That's not true. You shouldn't say things like that. A man makes his own soul, but it dies with him unless he can pour it into his kids and his grandchildren before he goes. I lie to myself. Ken's a yellow belly. Nora made him one, and the boots won't fit. Don't, Donnie. You'll excite yourself again. I was going to give him the boots, the overboots with magnesols, but they won't fit him. They won't ever fit him. He's a lily-livered lapdog, and he whines. Bring me my boots, woman. Donnie. The boots. They're in my locker in the attic. I want them. What on earth? Bring me my goddamn space boots and put them on my feet. I'm going to wear them. You can't. The priest's coming. We'll get them anyway. What time is it? You didn't let me sleep through the moon run blast, did you? She shook her head. It's half an hour yet. I'll get the boots if you promise not to make me put them on you. I want them on. You can't until Father Paul's finished. Do I have to get my feet butted? She sighed. I wish you wouldn't say things like that. I wish you wouldn't, Donnie. It's sacrilege, you know it is. All right, anointed, he corrected wearily. Yes, you do. The boots, woman, the boots. She went to get them. While she was gone, the doorbell rang, and he heard quick footsteps on the stairs, and then Father Paul's voice asking about the patient. Old Donegal groaned inwardly. After the priest, the doctor would come, at the usual time, to see if he were dead yet. The doctor had let him come home from the hospital to die and the doctor was getting impatient. Why don't they let me alone, he growled. Why don't they let me handle it in my own way and stop making a fuss over it? 
I can die and do a good job of it without a lot of outside interference, and I wish they'd quit picking at me with syringes and sacraments and enemas. All he wanted was a chance to listen to the orchestra on the Keith Terrace, to drink the rest of the whiskey, and hear the beast blast away for the satellite on the first lap of the run to Luna. It's going to be my last day, he thought. My eyes are going fuzzy, and I can't breathe right, and the throbbing's hurting my head. Whether he lived through the night wouldn't matter, because delirium was coming over him, and then there would be the coma, and the symbolic fight to keep him pumping and panting. I'd rather die tonight and get it over with, he thought, but they probably wouldn't let me go. He heard their voices coming up the stairs. Nora tried to get them to stop it, father, but she couldn't get in to see anybody but the butler. He told her he'd tell Mrs. Keith, but nothing happened. It's just as loud as before. Well, as long as Donnie doesn't mind. He just says that. You know how he is. What are they celebrating, Martha? Young Ronald's leaving, for pre-space training. It's a going-away affair. They paused in the doorway. The small priest smiled in at Donegal and nodded. He set his black bag on the floor inside, winked solemnly at the patient. I'll leave you two alone, said Martha. She closed the door and her footsteps wandered off down the hall. Donegal and the young priest eyed each other warily. You look like hell, Donegal, the padre offered jovially. Feeling nasty? Get to small talk. Let's get this routine over with. The priest humped thoughtfully, sauntered across to the bed, gazed down at the old man disinterestedly. What's the matter? Don't want the routine? Rather play it tough? What's the difference? He growled. Hurry up and get out. I want to hear the beast blast off. You won't be able to said the priest, glancing at the window, now closed again. That's quite a racket next door. They'd better stop for it. They'd better quiet down for it. They'll have to turn it off for five minutes or so. Maybe they won't. It was a new idea and it frightened him. He liked the music and the party's gaiety, the nearness of youth and the good times, but it hadn't occurred to him that it wouldn't stop so he could hear the beast. Don't get upset, Donegal. You know what a blast-off sounds like. But it's the last one. The last time. I want to hear. How do you know it's the last time? Hell, don't I know when I'm kicking off? Maybe, maybe not. It's hardly your decision. It's not, huh? Old Donegal fumed. Well, but God, you'd think it wasn't. You'd think it was Martha's and yours and that damn fool medic's. you think I got no say-so. Who's doing it anyway? I would guess, Father Paul grunted sourly. The Providence might appreciate his fair share of the credit. Old Donegal made a surly noise and hunched his head back into the pillow to glower. You want me? the priest asked. Or is this just a case of wifely conscience? What's the difference? Give me the business and scram. No soap. Do you want the sacrament? Or are you just being kind to your wife? If it's for Martha, I'll go now. Old Donegal glared at him for a time, then wilted. The priest brought his bag to the bedside. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Bless you, son. I accuse myself. Tension, anger, helplessness. They had piled up on him, and now he was feeling the after-effects. Vertigo, nausea, and the black confetti, a bad spell. The whiskey, if he could only reach the whiskey. Then he remembered he was receiving a sacrament, and struggled to get on with it. Tell him, old man. Tell him of your various rottennesses and vile transgressions, if you can remember some. A sin is whatever you're sorry for, maybe. 
But old Donegal, you're sorry for the wrong things, and this young Jesuitical gadget wouldn't like listening to it. I'm sorry I didn't get it instead of Ollie. I'm sorry I fought in the war. I'm sorry I can't get out of this bed and take a belt to my daughter's backside for making a puny whelp out of Ken, and I'm sorry I gave Martha such a rough time all these years, and wound up dying in a cheap flat instead of giving her things like the Keiths had. I wish I had been a sharpster, a contractor, a thief, instead of a common labouring spacer whose species lost its glamour after the war. Listen, old man, you made your soul yourself, and it's yours. This young dispenser of oils, substances and mysteries wishes only to help you scrape off the rough edges and gouge out the bad spots. He will not steal it nor distort it with his supernatural chisels, nor make fun of it. He can take nothing away but only cauterize and neutralize, he says, so why not let him try? Tell him the rotten messes. Are you finished, my son? Old Donegal nodded wearily and said what he was asked to say and heard the soft mutter of Latin that washed over him inside and behind his ghostly ears. Ego te absolvo in nomine patri. And he accepted the rest of it, lying quietly in the candlelight and the red glow of the sunset through the window, while the priest anointed him and gave him bread, and read the words of the soul in greeting its spouse. I was asleep, but my heart waked. In the voice of my beloved calling, Come to me, my love, my dove, my undefiled. And from beyond the closed window came the sarcastic wail of a clarinet painting hot slides against a rhythmic background. It wasn't so bad, old Donegal thought when the priest was done. He felt like a schoolboy in a starched shirt on Sunday morning, and it wasn't a bad feeling, though it left him weak. The priest opened the window for him again, and repacked his bag. Ten minutes till blast-off, he said. I'll see what I can do about the racket next door. When he was gone, Martha came back in, and he looked at her face and was glad. She was smiling when she kissed him, and she looked less tired. Is it all right for me to die now? he grunted. Donnie, don't start that again. Where's the boots? You promised to bring them? They're in the hole. Donnie, you don't want them. I want them, and I want a drink of whiskey, and I want to hear them fire the beast. He said it slow and hard, and he left no room for argument. When she had got the huge boots over his shrunken feet, the magnasoles clanged against the iron bed frame and clung there, and she rolled him up so that he could look at them, and old Donegal chuckled inside. He felt warm and clean and pleasantly dizzy. The whiskey, Martha, and for God's sake, make them stop the noise till after the firing, please. She went to the window and looked out for a long time. Then she came back and poured him an insignificant drink. Well? I don't know, she said. I saw Father Paul on the terrace talking to someone. Is it time? She glanced at the clock, looked at him doubtfully and nodded. Nearly time. The orchestra finished a number, but the babbling of laughing voices continued. Old Donegal sagged. They won't do it. They are the Keiths, Martha. Why should I ruin their party? She turned to stare at him, slowly shook her head. He heard someone shouting, but then a trumpet started softly, introducing a new number. Martha sucked in a hurt breath, pressed her hands together, and hurried from the room. It's too late, he said after her. Her footsteps stopped on the stairs. The trumpet was alone. Donegal listened, and there was no babble of voices, and the rest of the orchestra was silent. Only the trumpet sang, and it puzzled him, hearing the same slow bugle notes of the call played at the lowering of the colours. The trumpet stopped suddenly, 
and then he knew it had been for him. A brief hush, and then thunder came from the blast station two miles to the west. First the low reverberation, rattling the windows, then the rising growl as the sleek beast knifed skywards on a column of blue-white hell. It grew and grew until it drowned the distant traffic sounds and dominated the silence outside. Quit crying, you old fool, you maudlin' ass. My boots, he whispered. My boots, please. You've got them on, Donny. He sank quietly then. He closed his eyes and let his heart go up with the beast, and he sank into the gravity padding of the blast room, and Cade was with him, and Ollie, and then Ronald Keith III instructed the orchestra to play Blast Room Man, after the beast's rumble had waned. Old Donegal was on his last moon run, and he was grinning. He'd had a good day. Martha went to the window to stare out at the thin black trail that curled starwards above the blast station through the twilight sky. Guests on the terrace were watching it too. The doorbell rang. That would be Ken, too late. She closed the window against the chill breeze and went back to the bed. The boots, the heavy, clumsy boots, they clung to the bed frame, with his feet half out of them. She took them off gently and set them out of company's sight. Then she went to answer the door. Published in Amazing Stories, March 1954. There you go. Copyright is, it's anybody's game. <laughs> it's out there in the kind of public domain, so it's yours if you want it. Next up is Fred Heimbar with his graphical fan for November. Fred! Ahoy, sofa beings. Fred Heimbach calling. I'm back with episode three of The Graphic Fan, Cancer and Other Hilarities. On behalf of all the peace-loving people of planet Earth, I bring you greetings. We're all about the joys of cancer here, but it's not all cancer all the time on The Graphic Fan channel. And by the way, that's Graphic Fan channel spelled with Y's. You may remember in previous episodes that I've confessed to a lack of enthusiasm for superhero comics. Since superhero comics are rather a critical component of the total graphic novel medium, that lack causes a certain crisis of confidence for me as a reviewer. Well, I recently received email from my contacts within the Matthew Sanborn Smith community asking me to have a look at some of the iconic titles of the superhero genre. He gave me these titles. All-Star Superman Volumes 1 and 2. Fantastic creative team on these. They explore Superman's final days in ways that are mythic, super sciency, and very human. Batman Year 100. Not a 100-year-old Batman, but a futuristic Batman story. Plastic Man on the Lamb. Looks like kid stuff, but you'll love it. Okay, Matthew. Let's talk about that first one you mentioned, All-Star Superman. By accident, when I was at the library, I picked up a copy of Superman, The Greatest Stories. There was one positive benefit to that mistake. I now know how to pronounce Mixiuspolk. That collection covers many years of early Superman and acts as an excellent demonstration of the maturation of U.S. comics. You remember last time I was talking about an early comic book called The Yellow M, 
and I called that comics writing primitive. I said it over-narrated and didn't trust the visuals to do their share in carrying the story. Well, early Superman suffers from the same problem, only worse. And I mean really worse. Instead of narration, characters are made to narrate their own lives. There's this constant stream of self-talking, and it's absolutely dreadful. I've got an example right here. So Superman's looking at a picture of Crypto, his dog, and he says, Why, that's Crypto as a pup. He became my pet, Superdog, when I was Superboy in Smallville. And it's like that over and over. It's constant, I'm telling you. My 11-year-old son, who has been reading the Superman along with me, helped me pick out the most egregious examples of this, laughing his head off as he did. When you've lost the 11-year-olds, you've lost the core constituency of superhero comics. Well, over the years, Superman gets better, naturally, and by the time we get to the all-star Superman of the current millennium, the writing by Grant Morrison is disciplined, and the visuals created by lead artist Frank Quietly really grab. There's this puckery thing going on around the mouths of the characters in the drawings that is a little different from anything else I've seen in comics. All-Star Superman is where things get mythic, super sciency, and very human, as Matthew Sanborn-Smith promised. I'm still partial to the subversive, untypical Superman Red Sun that I mentioned in a previous episode, but All-Star Superman is a better starting point. As an aside, let me recommend you check out the Metropolis Symphony, a really fun, listenable, modern orchestral work by composer Michael Doherty, who I'm a big fan of uh, for, other, for many reasons, including the fact that he lives in my town of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The man has a vast knowledge of pop iconography, and he puts it into his music. The Metropolis Symphony starts with the blast of a police whistle, and by the time the siren starts howling, there's no doubt that you're in Superman's world. Listen up, people. It's called the Metropolis Symphony. Check it out. Okay, now, as promised, we're going to dive into cancer. Oh, yeah, let's wallow in it. These cancer comics that I'm going to describe are very close to my heart, since my darling wife, Julie, had a close brush with death a few years ago. Uh, in fact, she celebrates this month her fourth full year of being cancer-free. My first discovery in the cancer comics genre is Mom's Cancer by Brian Fees. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's F-I-E-S. I discovered it when it was still a webcomic. In 2005, it won an Eisner Award for Best Digital Comic, and in 2006, it was picked up by the publisher... Henry N. Abrams for a hardcover publication. I blogged this strip years ago on my website, and I got an immediate reply from the author who told me he gulped at my description of the art as, quote, inappropriate, unquote. Commenting on my blog, he said, In brief explanation, if not defense, of my artwork, the stylistic choice was deliberate. 
There have been other biographical or autobiographical comic strip treatments of similar subjects. Every single one I can think of was drawn in a dark, anguished, hyper-detailed, scritchy, scratchy, underground style. I wanted to do something different and more accessible. I wanted Grandma and the kitties to be able to read Mom's Cancer without being put off by the art and language. I thought a more familiar comic strippy style, like Family Circus Goes to Hell, would invite in readers who have never seen a graphic novel. Unquote. I'm now more sophisticated, and I think the art choice makes perfect sense. Do check out the book. The story it tells is true, and you'll identify with the author as he attempts to manage his endearing, exasperating mother, her lung cancer, and her cigarettes. It also serves as an excellent prelude to Cancer Made Me a Shallower Person by Miriam Engelberg. Like Brian Fee's mom, Engelberg utterly fails to attain the otherworldly enlightenment that intense suffering is supposed to give you. You'll laugh, and you'll laugh some more. Another entry into the Isn't Cancer Hilarious department is Cancer Vixen, which tries to be everything that the previous is. I didn't really give it a chance, since I was turned off by author Marissa Acocella Marchetto and her downtown Manhattan lifestyle. Her cartoons have appeared in The New Yorker. Turning 180 degrees, we have the dreadful experience of comics god Harvey Pickar, he of American Splendor fame. Harvey went through chemo when chemo really was only marginally less worse than the disease. His entire back broke out in shingles, and he eventually had to learn how to sleep while resting on his knees and elbows because his back was too painful to lie on. I've had a mild, very mild outbreak of shingles about a year ago, and I can tell you uh, the full-blown thing would be horrifying. Harvey and his co-author wife, Joyce Brabner, take their time getting the narrative to that point, however, and I caution you to approach this book with maximum patience. To paraphrase the playwright Chekhov, if you show a lump in Act 1, you must have a cancer diagnosis in Act 2. Harvey gets to the diagnosis sometime around Act 17, I think. In the meantime, there's plenty of the foibles of Harvey's co-workers, and then there's the handyman who gets religion and decides God wants him to rip Harvey off, and then there's the peace activists Joyce works with, one of whom fabricates stories about suffering police brutality because it helps him pick up chicks. I should mention Joyce deserves some kind of medal for patient care of her husband patient. Also, I'd like to give a medal for artistic heroism to Frank Stack, whose chaotic drawings, in what Brian Fees referred to as a scritchy, scratchy style, perfectly complement Harvey and Joyce's cancer year. That's it for cancer. I want to give one more recommendation, this time from the world of manga. There's an eight-volume sci-fi series from about five years ago called ES, and that stands for Eternal Sabbath. I really enjoyed the series. 
two boys spawned in a lab escape into the world with post-human powers of mind control. The older boy is good. The younger boy is evil. Ooh, is he evil. This little tyke makes the kids from Village of the Damned look positively cherubic. None of the ideas in this series are particularly original. The movie Scanners is an obvious precursor. But still, this is good, basic, quality sci-fi manga with crisp artwork and disciplined storytelling by Fuyumi Soryo. Check it out. Well, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next month with the next installment of The Graphic Fan. Big star, Fred. Thank you so much. Learning all the time, sir. Thank you. Hello. Are you listening to a crackalacking sci-fi story on the starship sofa? Have we interrupted you? We were irritating Scottish voices. I think we might have done. If you like having a laugh, I think you should come and check out our podcast, Jenny Godley's podcast with... Me, Jenny Godley, the only mother and daughter comedy podcast because you're my daughter. I am your daughter. And your name is? Ashley Story. And we love the Starship Sofa. We do love the Starship Sofa. They are our cosmic cousins. So if you enjoy the Starship Sofa, take a switch over and listen to... Jenny Godley's podcast. Do Tony's voice. I'm Tony C. Smith and this is me, no steely steely. <laughs> That's it. We love you guys. Come and listen to Jenny Godley's podcast. Bye. Enjoy your stories. Bye. Yes, go please go over to Jenny Godley's podcast there. Please subscribe. It is fantastic. They are just two stars there, Hope and Scotland. I don't think actually that far from me. Mind you, Jenny, I hope you keep miles away from me. You are mad as a hatter. I feel honestly shell-shocked for your husband there. Follow Jenny on Twitter, and man, does that man get it? Do you know what I mean? I'm going to put him up in a kind of like a home. <laughs> so please do pop over there and say hello to Jenny Godley and Ashley Story. Ash, thank you so much. Next up, as <laughs> as I actually say these words, I still haven't got it, but I know I will will get it. Won't I, Larry? Please, in the next few seconds, your fantasy con report will come down the line. Are we ready? Here it is. Larry? Larry? Are you there? Larry, come on. Come on, are you there? Hey! The universe, then the world, was created. Then Sunday, December 7th, 1941, I was conceived, born nine months later. And then, 1999, I went to my first world fantasy convention, Providence, Rhode Island. Been to some science fiction conventions back in Philly, back in the 70s. But for this, I drove from Chicago to Providence with Marty Munt, out of that epic push, 18 hours through the deep, dark night of the world, I got a pretty good story, Rat Time in the Hall of Pain, now being published 2011 in Drink for the Thirst to Come. But Rhode Island, 1999. 
walked into the hospitality suite, a ground floor, round room with floor-to-ceiling windows and lots of bagels, and sat down with a gang of strangers, among them Tim Powers. One woman among us, I don't know her name, began to tell a tale, the telling of which would take more time than I have, but it has become known as Dogs in Elk. I've been trying to use that story for years. So... At the Hyatt in Columbus, Ohio, 2010, I check in, get a room at half price, drop my stuff off, wander through the bar, and see Peter Straub heading toward me, kind of heading toward me. He's leaning as though his walk were a vector of forces and gravity. It isn't what it should be. How nice, I think. He remembers that bottle of Chopin vodka I bought him at Nikon back in 2000. I think it was 2000. But no, Peter is just heading my way because I am between him and the Lou. We do talk a bit. He says he's feeling a bit dizzy. Travel, he says. We part, he to the loo, I to go scope out the room where in a few hours, 8 p.m. Thursday evening, I'll have my one and only planned event for the con, a reading. Uh, This fact has been verified on the huge liquid crystal screens that abound throughout the public parts of the hotel, and there it was, checking in. 8 p.m., reading, Lawrence Santoro, Marion. Marion is a room, not a woman. So I head for Marion, in which I see a young fellow setting up for his reading, and we chat. Uh, He's been with Jeremiah Tolbert, it seems, for most of the day. Jeremiah's here? I didn't know that. Jeremy used to edit Escape Pod. He brought me in to read Eugene Foster's Sinner, Baker, Fabulous Priest, Red Mask, Black Mask, Gentleman, Beast. We'd shared a few chats on the late lamented Sofanaut show. We've talked many times, but we've never met. So I go looking for Jeremy. I fortified my brain by looking up his Facebook picture and burned that into my head. Later, I find him, but only much later. Friday morning, he, uh, Brenda Cooper, Tecilia, and I wait for a seat for breakfast at the hotel restaurant. We share a table, breakfast, chat, then split. So, back to 8 p.m. on the con's opening day. 8 p.m. on the con's opening day is not a great time for a reading, I think. Uh, Readings at cons are almost never really well attended, not unless you're Neil or Peter or Tim or Ted or anyone with a real reputation. You get your buddies, your wife, maybe. So I am sanguine about the showing at my 8 p.m. reading, which also coincided with the opening ceremonies down the way and around the corner. So I think, well, maybe Cecilia will be there. I go to the room where the opening ceremony is happening. Now, this con, because Worldcon was in Australia and therefore little attended by mobs of hungry, con-going Americans, this con has a large turnout for world fantasy, a thousand people or so, uh, which I'm told is not all that exceptional for a world fantasy convention. But the point is, the room for the opener holds maybe 200 people. And there were mobs spilling into the corridor, down the hall. So, hmm, I think, maybe, well, I go back to Marion at about 7.45, and it's locked. A group has now gathered, I assumed more or less correctly for someone else. I began speaking with a woman named Colleen Cahill, who it turns out is a Library of Congress librarian. She deals with maps there. And we talk about Miles Harvey's wonderful book, The Island of Lost Maps. And then I find Colleen is part of the Washington Science Fiction Association, or WISFA. WISFA, I discover, gives an annual prize, money. I gather information from her and invite her to hear my reading. 
Eventually, as it must to everyone, eight o'clock came round. Marion's doors are still locked. Someone, to Celia, I believe, has scooted off to find a hotel person who then comes and opens the door. The door open, I pour in. Then came Colleen, then to Celia, and Egad, more, then more. At final non-count, about, I guess, 20 to 25 people showed up and watched me fumble with my computer. I, I frequently read from the screen so I can expand the font to accommodate my eye strain of the moment. Anyway, finally, I got going and did a, a creditable rendition of the first few pages of Drink for the Thirst to Come. That's the title story of the collection to be. Uh, Ended at a good place, just as 8.30 and Gin C. Hines' crowd took my place. And that was it. My only official duty at the con. The rest of the time, until 10.40 Sunday morning, was mine to bungle about in. I don't like panels, usually. I, I was having a break for about an hour or so at one point, sitting with Neil Clark from Clark's World and Kate Baker, who shouted hello at me from one point in the weekend, and I politely helloed back, and then I saw her name and embraced her. We we knew each other, but had never met. Anyway, we were talking about how this con gave me the option when I first joined, read or do a panel, with the hint that this was the case for lesser lights such as I. As I am accustomed to being a lesser light, I suggested that my only real expertise that might be usable in a panel was uh, in podcast science fiction and fantasy via the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa. I was told that there was nothing, nothing at all having to do with that sort of thing. So did I want to read? And I said, yes. And the truth of it is, almost always is, there is nothing on the program that could not have been covered 25 years ago and probably has been covered every year. Uh, names change, but not the notions. Neil brought this up when we were sitting talking. That's why I mentioned him earlier, not just to drop his name. Well, anyway, I'm hoping that we can show them next year. Well, maybe the year after in Toronto, because next year, World Fantasy is in San Diego, Neil Gaiman is the guest of honor, and that will be a star-fucked party that I probably won't attend because, well, I like Neil, but I don't necessarily like the people who like Neil. So sorry, Kate, she loves Neil. The point of mentioning all this is that by now, Cecilia has gone through the convention schedule and she's marked all the things she's interested in, and she takes me to something called Supernatural Horror of the Machine Age. I note Tim Powers is in it. So, too, is Steve Resnick-Tem, who has twice beaten me for a Bram Stoker Award in two separate categories. Anyway, I go. And before the panel, I run into Tim in the hallway. We exchange memories of Dog in Elk, which he, too, has been trying to work into something ever since Providence 1999. And I mention the Starship Sofa, the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa. By our side is a very young kid, Daniel Goodman, by his name tag he is known. I mention the starship, and he lights up. Tony C. Smith, he calls out. And then he notices my name and evinces some recognition. I'm pleased, uh, though not as much as I am later in the weekend when I suddenly hear my name called out, and I turn to see an attractive woman in line for some event or food moment or other, and she says, Larry Santoro, I love your readings on the Starship Sofa. I love your story about the little girl in the sand coming to life and eating people. It really scared me, and, and I blush, and I realize, well, maybe it's, maybe it's not too bad to be Neil Gaiman, but 
back to Daniel and Tim Powers. Tim is now interested in Starship Sofa, and I tell him a little bit more. Now, Tim is a very smart guy. He's a great writer, very funny, quite loquacious, and a charming conversationalist who has the unique capacity in this day to actually listen to people and then engage them with what they've said. He listens to Daniel and to me, so I I hope Tony is able to get something from him for the future and do an interview with him at least. He's one of my favorite writers. Later, Daniel mentions that there is an open mic. Midnight that night, he's going to read something, a novella he's been working on. Would I come and hear him? Yes, I will. Me? Up at midnight? Well, at midnight, however, I am there. And after having dinner with Daryl Schweitzer, former editor of Weird Tales, and his wife, the author Maddie Braun, uh, Tessilia and I went back to the room. We watched Creature from the Black Lagoon, after which Tessilia dropped off and I went back down to where the open mic was scheduled. It's a big room, 200 or so capacity, and now empty. Just 15-year-old Daniel and his papers waiting out in the hall. It looks like no one's going to show up, he says. So I say, well... If not, you'll read, I'll listen. Just before midnight, Daryl shows. He's the one who programmed the event. He says, looking into the room, well, it looks like no one's going to show. Then, magically, 35 clarion kids arrive. They're all happy. They're all pretty drunk and all very, very lively. The event is very on. So Daryl reads a silly little thing, and that's what the whole thing was supposed to be, silly little things and poems and such. And then several clarion kids get up and read from their iPhones and their iPads, a few other people. It's, it's all very loosey-goosey. Then Daniel gets up. He reads his piece. It, it's quite good. There's a lot of thought in it, a, a lot of work, a little longer than most of the other people's things, but that's fine. After he finished, his mother came up, whispered something, and he said he had to go. He apologized. So from a decision to not read, I decide to read. I get up, mention Starship Sofa, the Hugo Award-winning Starship Sofa, and read, then just a dream. It gets a good response, and it wrapped up the evening. Outside the room, uh, Adrian Simmons came over and told me how much he enjoyed the story and the reading and asked me to give him something for HeroicFantasyQuarterly.com. I've never written Heroic Fantasy, I told him. The fact is, I'm not even particularly fond of heroic fantasy, which I didn't tell him. I can be politic at times. But I know I sometimes do reasonably well when I'm doing something I've never done before. For example, my zombie story that's going to be in Drink for the Thirst to Come. Have I mentioned that? And the vampire story, also in Drink for the Thirst to Come, soon to come. Anyway, the point is, I think I will do a bit of heroic fantasy and send it off. Can't hurt. Now, I know most of you heard that Gene Wolfe recently underwent some serious health issues, cardiac problems, surgery, and that part of the person. Scary stuff. Uh, just a few months ago, and suddenly, there he was. He and his wife, Rosemary. They had driven there from Chicago alone. Not a long trip, seven hours, but long enough to be off-putting. Egad, I had punked out on driving at the last minute and took other means of transport to get to Celia and self to Columbus. And I was very, very happy to see him. He has meant a lot to me over the past few years, and I'm glad to see how well he looked. And Joe Haldeman. I bumped into Gay and Joe in another line another time, a shock. 
uh, when last I heard, Joe was in some kind of induced coma or some such awfulness. And I know Joe from my days at the Organic Theater in Chicago, where once we did an adaptation of The Forever War. And I got to know him better at World Fantasy in Corpus Christi when the two of us, one night and very drunk, accompanied on beaten trash cans, someone playing a didgeridoo at three in the morning. It was good to see that Joe was vertical. It was also good to see Joe Fletcher again, British poet of the odd and weird. I, I've not seen her in years. And for a while, and for a Brit, uh, Joe seemed to make an alarming number of trips to Chicago for readings at my old writer's group, Twilight Tales. I'm sure she was doing something else much more important, but it was good to see her in Chicago and here at the convention. I also ran into Jonathan Strayan uh, at the mass signing, a ballroom filled with hundreds of writers and a million milling fans jumping from one to the next author with an armload of books. Jonathan is one of those people with whom I've Skyped but never met, and seated next to him at the signing was Jeff Ford, whose wonderful story, The Dreaming Wind, I was privileged to read for the Starship some time ago. Jeff is a big, burly, bearded fellow with a heavy Jersey accent, and I couldn't quite hear him do the dreaming wind. But later, when I heard him read another tale of his, that voice, the presence, it, it all worked just fine. One of my favorite moments of the convention came when Cecilia took me to a sort of sub rosa event she'd heard about. Uh, she pays attention. Ellen Datlow and Nick Mamantas were, were going to hold a guerrilla reading from their anthology, Haunted Legends. Haunted Legends began as an HWA project, one of those give us your best suggestion for an anthology and we'll see if we can do it thing. Uh, and this turned out to be a really good book. Nick didn't have quite the clout to become the editor of record for the cover, so he and Ellen got together. And Ellen Datlow is the queen of anthologies, I needn't say. Uh, so the project did go forth. Uh, the con had no rooms available for the reading, so Tor Books made their suite available. Jeff Ford was one of the authors. About 10 of us, I guess, gathered in a circle around Ellen and Nick and Jeff and some of the other contributors as they read from their work in the book. This was one of those idealized moments for an event like this, a, a group of storytellers sitting in a circle in the late afternoon and telling ghost stories as lights fade. Well, maybe the light didn't fade, but it was a grand time, all the grander for the intimacy. There were a few disappointments. Uh, one of my favorite people in the writing biz, uh, P.D. Kasich, Trish Kasich, whom I met at my first world fantasy and thought she had the best posture I'd ever seen, was not there. I learned that she's sort of out of the fantasy horror game and is now doing theater in New Jersey. Ah, uh, well. Nor was James Morrow there, whose work I had just discovered through having read Bigfoot and the Bodhisattva for the starship, and I was hoping to meet him, but no. Garrett Peck, critic, editor, theater guy, and all-around interesting fellow, wasn't there either. Uh, so if you hear this, Garrett, I hope all is well. Garrett is the editor who nudged me to write a piece that became So Many Tiny Mouths, which the woman in line had said had frightened her so much. Another disappointment, John Scalzi was there, and I didn't get to meet him or even to see him. The fact is, I didn't see quite a few of my old friends in the business. Age, infirmity, distance, I don't know. Ah, uh, well, time goes. And some personal disappointments. There I was, alone, in an elevator for 15 slow floors with Jim Frankel and me with nothing to pitch. 
we passed the time talking about which of us was the larger Luddite and had the most lame cell phone record. I did have a good talk with Paula Gurin, though. My last face-to-face with Paula was years ago at some con, now forgotten. That meeting involved my actually sending her something, something she'd requested for a project she was editing and then not hearing from her again at all. Always frustrating. Now I find out more or less why that was, and so it's forgotten. Paula is still editing and in some measure representing writers. And that's another disappointment. I was hoping to encounter a few agents. I did not. Probably missed the opportunity because of aforesaid woeful ignorance and not having my own Virgil this time to lead me along the path of righteousness and introduce me to to people everyone knows but me. I did spread the Starship Sofa word. I spoke briefly with Ted Chang, whom I know only by reputation, deservedly huge, and he's currently not able to supply the sofa with anything. Oh, well. Another disappointment is that another A-list fantasist is an asshole and will not consider—well, never mind— The attitude he has works for Harlan Ellison. It does not work for this guy. Anyway, Harlan wasn't there either. Another disappointment. Harlan, I hear, is not doing well. I hear is anticipating dropping out of the human race while guest of honor somewhere. And yes, I have some Harlan stories, but who doesn't? This next part that I'll do is is from day two of my attempt to put World Fantasy Convention 2010 into perspective. I told Tony this would be a highly individualized account of the event. Why? Well, because I'm woefully ignorant. I know a few people. A few people know me. It's why I was always such a bust in the sofa knots, I guess. I I speak knowingly of so few things. For most professional writers, these events are occasions to go face-to-face with agents, talk contracts with publishers, hash out edits with editors, and to get drunk with old friends and share war stories. Being the least professional professional I know, one who almost never submits unless he's asked, one who doesn't know a contract from a smile, who has little or nothing to say with his fellows because he reads very little of what is written in the field, and one who now doesn't drink. Conventions are a time for me to resonate with the world of fiction, to get my face and name out there, and to build a few friendships that might turn into offers of employment and use. You know, the won't you write something for me thing like that, don't you know? And for those who find this to be just too personal a report, uh... Who needs some hard news to make it all worthwhile? Here it is. I couldn't stay for the awards banquet on Sunday afternoon, but here, for the record, are the winners of the 2010 Fantasy Award, the Howies, uh, Howard for Howard P. Lovecraft. And this, according to the Internet, is a definitive list of the nominees and winners. In the novel category... In Great Waters by Kit Whitfield, Finch by Jeff Vandermeer, The Red Tree by Caitlin R. Kiernan, Blood of Ambrose by James Eng, and the winner was The City and the City by China Mievo. Novella, Everland by Paul Whitcover, The Night Cash, Andy Duncan, The Lion's Den, Steve Duffy, I Needs Must Part, The Policeman Said, Richard Bowes, The Women of Nell Gwynn's by Cage Baker.
and the winner, Sea Hearts by Margot Lanigan. In short story, Light on the Water by Genevieve Valentin. In Hiding, R.B. Russell. The Persistence of Memory, or This Space for Sale, Paul Park. Singing on a Star, Ellen Clage, and I apologize if I've mispronounced that. A Journey of Certain Events of Scientific Interest from the First Survey Voyage of the Southern Waters by H.M.S. Ocelot, as observed by Professor Thaddeus Boswell, Doctor of Philosophy, Master of Science, or A Lullaby, by Helen Keeble. And the winner, The Pelican Bar, by Karen Joyce Fowler. Anthology the Very Best of Fantasy and Science Fiction, 60th Anniversary Anthology, edited by Gordon Van Gelder. Eclipse 3, edited by Jonathan Strahan. Exotic Gothics 3, Strange Visitations, edited by Daniel Olson. Songs of the Dying Earth, Stories in Honor of Jack Vance, edited by George R. R. Martin and Gardner Dozois. Poe, edited by Ellen Datlow. And the winner... American Fantastic Tales, Terror and the Uncanny from Poe to the Pulps from the 1940s to Now, edited by Peter Straub. In the collection category, Everland and Other Stories, Paul Whitcover. Northwest Passages, Barbara Roden. There once lived a woman who tried to kill her neighbor's baby, Scary Fairy Tales by Ludmila Petrushskaya. Fugue State, by Brian Evanson. We Never Talk About My Brother, Peter S. Beagle. And the winner, a tie, There Once Lived a Woman Who Tried to Kill Her Neighbor's Baby, by Ludmila Pestrushevskaya, and The Very Best of Gene Wolfe, The Best of Gene Wolfe, Gene Wolfe Publishing, Tor Books. Artist, Sam Weber, Jason Zarillo, John Picaccio, John Jude Palancar, and the winner, Charles Vess. For special awards, there are two categories, professional and non-professional. In the special award professional, uh, the nominees are Jacob and Rena Weissman for Tachyon Publications, Barbara and Christopher Roden for Ashtree Press, Hayao Miyazaki for Ponyo, Ellen Datlow for Editing Anthologies, Peter and Nikki Crowther for P.S. Publishing, and the winner, Jonathan Strahan, for editing anthologies. In the special award, non-professional category, Ray Russell and Rosalie Parker for Tartarus Press, Bob Colby, B., Diane Martin, David Shaw, and Eric M. Van for ReaderCon, John Klima for Electric Velocipede, Neil Clark, Cheryl Morgan, and Sean Wallace for Clark's World Magazine, John Berlin for Powers, Secret Histories, and the winner, Susan Marie Gropey for Strange Horizons. And the final World Fantasy Life Achievement Awards this year went to Peter Straub, Terry Pratchett, yay Terry, and Brian Lumley. Well, that's it for me. Glad I went. Wish I'd done more. Spoken to more people. Stayed up later. Wish I still enjoyed drinking. Wished I'd had a book to hawk. 
well, maybe next year. Next year, maybe there will be drink for the thirst to come to sign. Maybe more of my old friends will be there next year. Yeah. This is Larry Santoro in Chicago. See you next time. Just in time. <laughs> Larry. <laughs> big hug, big fella. I love you. Right then, that is Oral Delights, show 161. Just to recap on, there is two copies left of the big book with the signatures in. If you want it, honestly, you're gonna be, you'll have to be very, very quick. Get the code from the front of the website, November book. 20% off the books there, please. And again, you know, a Big, big thank you to Shig, who has, you know, taken on the task and taken on the role there of providing a service for the Enhanced Feed. So up to now and for, for a while longer, Enhanced Feed lives to fight another day. I was ready to kill it off. But Shig stepped up and honestly, it's going to work out fine this if everything goes all right. So Shig, honestly, thank you so much. That is it. That's the baby put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Do support Starship Sova. Do get yourself a copy of the books. It does help, you know. Certainly keeps me going as well. Thank you so much. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Starship Sofa, a badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.